Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. On Sunday, riots in Brazil echoed the attacks on our own U.S. capital two years ago on January 6th. A coincidence, or is there a connection? Uh, We'll find that out, I think, at least have some views on that. On Sunday, if you were following the news, we saw the violent movement of election-denying supporters of former President Bolsonaro. Thousands of them storming Brazil's presidential palace, the Congress, the Supreme Court. Just as on January 6th, police officers outnumbered, the demonstrators persisted for hours, lashing out at what they saw as uh, falsely as a stolen election. In just a moment, we'll get analysis of what happened, as well as the similarities and differences to January 6th from an Iowa State University political scientist who has studied the politics of Brazil for many years. But first, let's talk with a native of Brazil who is a longtime resident of Iowa. Mauro Heck has lived for decades in Iowa City. He spends a good deal of his time, though, uh, during the year in his native Brazil. Mauro Heck, welcome back to the Thank program. Thank you, Ben. Great to be here. You are a native of Brazil, a photographer. You came to the U.S. in the early 80s. Uh, full disclosure, happy to say we are longtime friends. We've known each other when I counted, it's hard to believe, nearly 40 years. Yes. And you return to your homeland uh, pretty much every year to be with family and friends there. So this is a, an interesting perspective you have. We spoke, and our River River listeners may remember this, in November of 2022, to have you tell us about driving with your two adult daughters to the uh, Brazilian consulate in Chicago to vote in that election. And you shared then why participating in the vote from this long distance was worth the many hours of that journey. Let's go to this Sunday. What did you think? What was it like in your household, in your extended family, when the news broke on Sunday of this uh, attack, the rioters uh, in Brazil? Well, it was totally unexpected. Uh, Nobody was really uh, seeing that happening, including the local police forces. Uh, These demonstrations have been happening um, around military bases uh, for a long time, and uh, but nobody hoped uh, saw that that coming. So you know, like everybody else, uh, totally astonished. Yeah, they, give me give me a sense of the discussions you had with your. I assume you contacted family, friends in Brazil on Sunday. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, everybody was just appalled, and the news, you know, just like uh, here. Uh, when when January 6th happened, it was like 24-7 uh, news, and people just could not uh, get off the tube, uh, you know, just hoping that things would change because the devastation, the destruction of the presidential palace, the museum there, the Congress and the Supreme Court were immense. And, uh, you know, it was plain vandalism uh, that happened there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Let's make sure we realize that uh, we'll be talking about the differences and the similarities with January 6th. But one of the differences here that I want to point out is is that Brazil has is a very young democracy, relatively speaking. In fact, for all of your youth, you grew up in a dictatorship, didn't you? A military regime. Absolutely. I was raised uh, all the way into college under the military dictatorship, and uh, there was a lot of uh, problems. In 64, they took over, claiming that the communism was taking 
roots in Brazil and so on. And they were trying to get the military to uh, intervene this time as well. They stayed for 25 years, and it was disastrous, you know, um, those 25 years from 64 to 85. Um, So, you know, they were hoping that the military would do that. I'm glad that nothing like that happened, and and it wouldn't happen anymore. Yeah, but I have to believe with you growing up under an authoritarian regime, and then what's it, in the 80s, it became a democracy that uh, you could uh, have imagined on Sunday uh, Brazil slipping back into uh, um, out of democracy. It, it could. I mean, there's a, a tradition not only in Brazil uh, of military interventions that go back to the late 1800s, uh, but Latin America in general as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mauro Heck is with us, a native of Brazil, longtime resident of Iowa. Let's uh, also welcome Amy Erica Smith. She's an associate professor of political science at Iowa State University. Hello, Amy Erica. Hi. Ben, nice, nice to talk with you. Nice to have you back on our program. We'll remind Thank our you. listeners that uh, you've studied and written about Brazilian politics for uh, close to two decades. You have expertise on uh, public opinion there, voting behavior, and you've written quite a bit about uh, the far right in Brazil. Uh, so let's continue to talk about uh, what happened on Sunday when thousands of election-denying supporters, fueled by lies of a rigged election, stormed government billi- uh, buildings in the capital of Brasilia. Uh, Now that the tear gas has cleared up, uh, Amy, Erica, help us understand what happened. Uh, Why did it happen and what were the rioters hoping to achieve? Yeah, so to understand this, uh, you need to start off with understanding who the former president was, Jair Bolsonaro. Jair Bolsonaro was uh, elected in 2018 in the middle of a dramatic political crisis that affected most of the um, of the, the current politicians in Brazil at the time, many of the politicians. Um, and he was uh, elected really in, in kind of a protest vote against um, the system as usual in Brazil. He is very conservative. He'd been in politics for a long time um, and was known up until shortly before he was elected as a um, kind of a, a conservative firebrand, really, uh, and somebody who was prone to say things that were kind of politically incorrect. Uh, he also had said, famously said things like uh, one of the greatest mistakes of the dictatorship was uh, to torture but not to kill enough people. Um, so he was known as being an apologist for the military regime and um as having come out of the military, um, in part under the military regime, he'd, he'd entered the army uh, during the military regime, uh, eventually rose to the rank of captain, and uh, then left the army under circumstances in which he was being accused of um, kind of fomenting rebellion within the ranks of the army. Uh, he was ultimately discharged and not uh, convicted for for those charges. In any case, um, he entered politics after that and was for a long time a politician from the state of Rio de Janeiro, where he uh, was known for kind of representing the security forces, um, for being, you know, particularly um, t- politically tied to police and to the military uh, and having a strong political base there. So he was in politics for several decades uh, before he was eventually elected president. 
And when he was elected president, there was a lot of concern that Brazilian democracy might not withstand uh, Jair Bolsonaro's term as president. Uh, and he ended up um, having, you know, a, a mixed mixed performance in his term as president. Of course, he had the misfortune of becoming president uh, uh, shortly before the coronavirus pandemic. Um, there was a lot of accusation that he mishandled the coronavirus pandemic um, and fomented um, skepticism of vaccines and other public health measures during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so he was ultimately not a terribly popular president uh, and ultimately wasn't reelected. And people thought, OK, well, so clearly uh, Brazilian democracy has. But, had but it, difficulties yeah. under Bolsonaro, but not. Uh, but it ultimately survived. Yeah, and then but, we got to yes. Yeah, and then this last election in November, it, it, mm -hmm. it was a, a close result, wasn't it? It wasn't a blowout, yes. right? And so no. this allowed, um, I, I, this allowed these uh, false uh, claims of election fraud. Uh, to come to the surface, as exactly. they did uh, in the U.S. after the 2020 election. Was this act, what happened on Sunday, a direct result of uh, fomenting election, uh, false claims uh, of election fraud, as it was in, in this country? Yeah, effectively so. Um, this was not only driven by Jair Bolsonaro, uh, also by lots of his supporters, by social media groups, um, like uh, there, there are all, all of these um, like groups, uh, chat groups on WhatsApp, um, Telegram, where people are um, are disseminating messages, uh, many of them false about the uh, about the election. So yeah, uh, it's basically election skepticism, election denier, mm -hmm. denialism. More than a coincidence that it happened just days after our second anniversary of the January second attack. Uh, January 6th attack, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so this was organized by Brazilian groups. It was surely, um, there was certainly some influence. There's been a lot of influence between um, conspiracy theorists in the U.S. and conspiracy theorists in Brazil. Um, lots of back and forth influence. So yeah, surely there was some influence uh, from January 6th in the U.S. It also happens that this was a week after President Lula, uh, the, the new current president, um, was from the center-left party, the Workers' Party, um, who, uh, so anyway, this was a week, happened to be a week after Lula took office. So it was, you know, about the time that one would expect a protest. Um, and these kinds of protests had been building for months. Uh, so the fact that a protest happened on Sunday is not unusual. What is unusual is the fact that people were able to rampage through uh, through through the, the the public buildings. Yeah, Amy Erica Smith is a professor of political science at Iowa State University, specializes in Brazilian uh, politics. Just reminding those who may have just joined us, Mauro Heck, a native of Brazil, longtime resident of Iowa. Mauro Heck, what about that question for you about uh, the connection with with January sixth? Well, and just backtracking a little bit, and I'm uh, sure Professor Smith will agree with me that um, you know uh, when Bolsonaro was first elected, uh, Steve Bannon happened to be one of his main advisors down in Brazil. And uh, he was hired and so on. And, and, and Brazil has had a relation with the U.S. that goes back um, in many ways. Uh, um, you know, culturally, the language uh, has been highly influenced uh, 
uh, Halloween, which we didn't used to have seven, ten years ago. Kids <laughs> go out, uh, you know, and dress up uh, in costumes, uh, you know, total copycat things uh, of the U.S. And so this was not too different in that sense. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you both, starting with you, uh, Amy, uh, Eric, uh, about uh, the, the similarities and differences to January 6th. Um, one that, that uh, what, what, let, me ju- let me just throw that open to you, um, um, Amy, Eric. What would you say are the chief similarities here? We've discussed some of them already, haven't we? Well, the chief similarities are pretty clear. These are both um, <laughs> protests across big government buildings that are driven by people who are upset about losing an election. The parallels between Jair Bolsonaro and uh, Donald Trump are really strong and deliberate, at least on Jair Bolsonaro's part. Um, If you Google, if any of our listeners Google Jair Bolsonaro, they will find that he is often referred to as the Trump of the tropics. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro is really proud of this designation. Um, He likes being compared to Trump. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, the parallels between Trump and Bolsonaro are really clear, the election denialism, all of that. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe go to the differences uh, then. Is, is that, uh, well, one of the differences, unlike uh, Donald Trump, Bolsonaro was not in office when this happened. Uh, we have the newly elected president in office. And uh, uh, Bolsonaro largely abandoned his claims of election fraud after he lost the election, right, Amy Erica? Yeah, he he has not completely abandoned his claims of election fraud, but he has not been beating the drum of election fraud in the same way that he was before it happened. Uh, Bolsonaro never conceded the race, um, which is a big break from precedent and from norms in Brazilian politics. He also did not participate in the inauguration ceremony. So he never handed over the presidential sash to uh, his successor, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva. And that, again, is a big break from precedent. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's been not a loud sore loser, um, but he has not exactly been a happy loser either. Yeah, Uh, But he has criticized the violence condemning the riots, right? And uh, I think the... The, the quote that I saw in a report, he described uh, a recent foiled bomb plot by one of his supporters as a, quote, terrorist act. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, so, so Mara, weigh in on that, the, the differences here. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, a little bit more of comparisons. You know, uh, Trump was one of the few uh, friends that Bolsonaro had because he lost all friends in the whole world. I mean, not only the— Bolsonaro did. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, the disastrous um, you know, handling of the epidemic, but uh, the environmental causes mm-hmm. that got totally slashed in Brazil and— uh, the rainforest yes, and so forth. destruction, right. just basically giving you know people a free hand, just go do it, take it, and so on. Um, but other than that, you know, th- there was a, a bomb placed on a um, gasoline tanker that was entering the airport, and it was caught in time. Uh, but you know, as I mentioned earlier, the destruction, the historical artifacts, uh, gifts given by foreign countries. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. just the images are. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, In the five or so minutes we have left of our conversation, our time is getting away from us. Um, uh, Amy, Erica, I want to talk about sort of broaden it out a little bit. How important is Brazil's young democracy 
and its stability for the stability of the entire region. I would say Brazilian democracy is critical for the stability of the region. Brazil is the most populous country, uh, the, the largest country by land area and by population in Latin America. It is a mainstay of the Latin American economy. If Brazilian democracy were to fall, which I don't believe it will, but if it were to fall, yeah, that would be incredibly destabilizing for democracy across Latin America. So um, it's really important. Brazil, and besides democracy, besides the economy of Brazil, there's also Brazil's uh, role in the Amazon, which Mauro was referring to briefly. I mean, the largest portion of the Amazon is in Brazil. And if um, things go as badly as um, many scientists fear they might, Brazil's Amazon could currently be in a process of um, hitting a tipping point where it will start a process of conversion to savanna away from rainforest, which would ultimately um, massively affect the environment all across South America and even the globe. Mm -hmm. So, so Brazil have... is tremendously important for the region, for the globe. Yeah, we have a huge stake in it no matter where we are on this planet. Maro, heck, jump in on that point. Yeah, there's there's a lot happening in, in Latin America. There's disturbances. Uh, obviously, everyone knows about Venezuela, but there's problems in Peru, still in Colombia, and those are all neighboring countries. What what uh, To support uh, Professor Smith's uh, opinion there, you know, Brazil today, since the dictatorship ended in 85, it has a very active Congress. Uh, the media is very free. Um, it has a very active civic society. So though all those things uh, bring uh, you know, a lot of support, not to mention uh, support from all over the world that came instantly to the currently elected president against the vandalism, against the terrorism that happened there. So Biden, France, Germany, yeah. everybody. Ne yeah, nevertheless, Mauro, um, just as in our country, there are divisions. I mean, these were thousands of supporters of Bolsonaro uh, there. I wonder, in your personal situation, are those, as in the U.S. here, when we think about January 6th, divisions in this country that go to nearly every family, nearly every person's family who is listening, do those divisions exist in Brazil as well? Absolutely. My family's totally divided. My friends are totally divided. And I have people I know on both sides of, you know, well-educated who were great supporters of the current president, Lula, and uh, people who are rich uh, that are not so so great uh, about the current president were Bolsonaro uh, supporters. So, uh, you know, the best thing to do is really try to stay away from talking uh, <laughs> politics. Otherwise, it's going to... If you have a family gathering, that gonna is. It's going to turn into an ugly scene very quick. Mm -hmm. We have a few minutes left. Uh, Amy, Erica, what's, what's on your list of insights here that you've been sharing before we, before we leave? Well, I would finish it, um, I guess, talking a little bit about the future. I, uh, as I said, I think that we, one of the things that's, that is notable about Sunday is what didn't happen, which mm -hmm. is that a military coup didn't happen. There yeah. has been lots of fear in, among pundits, particularly observers in the international media, I think even more so than uh, domestically within Brazil, but lots of fear that a military coup could be in the offing. Um, 
And what has continually happened is that military coups haven't uh, taken place. Um, and most observers of Brazilian politics, the people who are watching most closely, didn't think that a military coup was likely to happen. And in fact, military coups haven't happened. Um, so this is optimistic for democracy. I am optimistic that Brazilian democracy is going to survive. At the same time, the big things we need to be watching for all of us who are observing Brazilian politics is how well the security forces uh, are able to figure out what the security lapses were on Sunday that enabled people to run rampage um, across public buildings and destroy uh, to destroy precious works of art um, and whether they're able to fix those security lapses in a way that doesn't destabilize the security forces. Yeah. So there's a lot of challenges still. And, 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 at the, and, and at the base of this is, uh, as in our country, is disinformation, misinformation here yeah. that fuels these opinions. We have to remember in Brazil, as in our country, the, the people who attack the U.S. Capitol and uh, the court, uh, also in Brasilia, uh, Mauro, these people saw them, they, they see themselves as patriots. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they've taken the flag, they've kidnapped the flag and made it their symbol. Uh, and the left has that let that happen in some ways that they shouldn't have. But yeah. uh, they consider themselves the, the only patriots in the whole country, and they are think that they are absolutely right doing what they're doing, although the majority of the people on the right do not agree with the violence that <laughs> yeah. happened. Dem Democratic institutions in Brazil have held so far. Mauro, a quick word on the way out. Uh, do you think they will continue to hold in your native I think, country? I think I agree with Professor Smith. The future looks promising. Yeah, and and reiterate that, uh, Professor Smith, uh, Amy, Erica, there too. Um, how uh, how surprised would you be if um, the democratic institutions in Brazil did not hold, and it was destabilizing not only for South America, we've seen other coup attempts there recently, um, uh, but but also for the world. I would be very, very surprised if democracy fell. I think there are certainly risks. Democracy is not, <laughs> everything's not fine and dandy, uh, but I believe democracy will hold in Brazil. There's sufficient will across a wide range of the population and across almost all politicians to maintain the democratic system. Um, that I believe it's going to hold. I would be very surprised if it fell. We sure so hope I will so. eat my words on air. Okay, just a <laughs> yeah. few seconds left, Mauro, yeah, the uh, final word. I mean, the, the center left is so organized, the country would turn into a civil war. I mean, the pandemonium would be vast and devastating. Mauro Heck, native of Brazil, longtime resident of Iowa. Thank you for coming into our studio, Mauro. Great to be here. Always good to have your expertise. Uh, Amy Erica Smith, associate professor of political science, longtime scholar of Brazilian politics. Amy Erica, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. When we come back, immigration is our focus and how it affects our economy. Also here in the Midwest, Peter Orasm of ISU joins us. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. And we are back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This half hour, immigration policy and uh, uh, how that uh, affects our economics, that's our focus. Uh, President Biden in Mexico today, economic cooperation, drug trafficking, migration, climate change, key topics uh, for Biden's meeting with the leaders of Canada and Mexico. If you remember Sunday, um, last Sunday, um, President Biden visiting the U.S.-Mexico border for the first time. He stopped in El Paso, Texas on his way to Mexico. His visit coming after, well, two years of back and forth with Republicans over the Biden administration's immigration policy. Republican state officials and the Biden administration, they've been sparring over the future of what is called Title 42. That's the early pandemic era policy that yet lets the U.S. Um, quickly expel most migrants seeking asylum without a hearing. Now, last month, our U.S. Supreme Court blocked the Biden administration from winding down that policy. Um, the Biden administration, administration though, now uh, announcing it plans to expand the policy to include people from Nicaragua, Cuba, Haiti, who illegally entered the U.S. through Mexico, but also plans to expand legal pathways for those entering the U.S. Um, the U.S. planning to accept up to 30,000 migrants from Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Venezuela each month. Well, a lot of a lot of explaining there. What does this all mean for the Midwest? How does our immigration policy, or I should say lack thereof, shape our economy? Let's check in with Peter Orasm, professor of economics at Iowa State University, a labor economist. Welcome back to our program, Peter. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, so much there to consider, but it's certainly time uh, good uh, in good time to check uh, in with you to get your views here. Remind us, please, if you could set the stage and comment on why we have this ongoing border crisis from your perspective as an economist, why our southern border flooded with immigrants from Latin America fleeing both political and economic conditions, right? Right. So um, one of the, the unique things of the more recent waves of, of people at the, at the border is that you have families and not just individuals. So traditionally, the people who are trying to enter to the U.S. Uh, outside the, the normal immigration uh, uh, um, uh, routes uh, are... are largely single people who are seeking employment. And, and that has not been true of some of the, the recent immigrants where you have entire families that are trying to enter the U.S. and seeking a, um, either political asylum or some or fleeing uh, from, from some uh, risk that they have in, in their home countries. Mm -hmm. So uh, to, to the central point that I wanted to get at with you, uh, let's talk about our immigration policy and the lack of an agreement between our major parties uh, on immigration reform. Uh, how has it impacted our economy here in Iowa, the Midwest, an economy we are always uh, reminded of uh, in the past few years with a, a severe labor shortage? Right, and the labor shortage has been exacerbated by the pandemic. The pandemic basically cut off uh, immigration, either legal uh, or uh, illegal. And so the number of people entering the country uh, 
since uh, 2020 has has been diminished significantly. And it's about half of the loss of labor supply or the shortage of labor supply that we have in the U.S. is due to uh, immigration that did not occur, that would have occurred under our previous uh, pre-pandemic policies. Mm -hmm. And um, talk about the jobs typically filled, the sectors uh, that rely on um, uh, migrant workers. Well, you have different uh, populations, right? So you have uh, the H-1B visa um, uh, or, uh, system that, that is primarily oriented toward STEM-type jobs, highly educated individuals. And then you have uh, legal immigrants that can enter temp- uh, temporarily under the H-2A visa, and a lot of the agricultural workers uh, will come into the U.S. for periods of time related to agricultural production. We don't have a lot of that in Iowa. The, the states that primarily use the H-2A visas are uh, ones that are growing fruits and vegetables, so California, Florida, Texas, uh, and so on. Um, and then you have uh, people who try to enter the, the country illegally for uh, work purposes, and they're going to be largely in some of the same sectors um, and so uh, the sectors where uh, lower-skill immigrants uh, work are primarily in the service sector, the hospitality industries, uh, construction, uh, labor-intensive agriculture, and some manufacturing, particularly non-durable manufacturing like food production. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last Congress, um, ending in December, There were bills to increase the number of foreign-born entrepreneurs, high-skilled workers, uh, microchip manufacturers, farm workers that failed to get enough votes to become law. I believe it's called the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. Um, It was the only one to make it out of the House of Representatives, opposed by 30 Republicans and one Democrat, still not been brought to a vote in the Senate. If, as... Our multiple discussions have brought, you know, reading has brought to mind if a sensible migration, an overhaul of our immigration policy would be so beneficial to our economy and help us with the current worker shortage, why is it failing again and again to gain enough support? Well, I think it's this, it's primarily a political failure. It's not an economic failure. I mean, you have, uh, you know, very uh, influential economic forces that are trying to urge Congress to act to expand the number of both uh, H-1B and H-2A visas, for example. And and it just hasn't happened. One of the interesting uh, uh, analyses that has come out recently is that if you have a 1% increase in the number of H-2A visas, which are primarily used for temporary agricultural labor, you get a 1% reduction in the number of people who are entering the country illegally. Hmm. And so there is a trade-off between legal and illegal immigration. And by not acting to expand the number of uh, legal immigration outlets, you actually increase incentives for people to enter the country illegally. Yeah. Um, From what I can uh, see in, in reading about this agreement between the two parties on comprehensive immigration reform doesn't look likely also in this new Congress with the new configuration uh, in Washington. But what if, what if um, 
there would be comprehensive immigration reform in the in the near future. How might that reshape our economy in the U.S., in the Midwest, in Iowa? Dream a little dream for us, Peter, if you could. <laughs> well, I, we could sing a sing a song there, I suppose. Um, well, one of the things to note is that for, for I mean, the U.S. Uh, natural population growth has been under 1% for many years. And so we're an aging population. We're not aging as rapidly as Europe, but we're aging. And without immigration, uh, we're not going to have enough people to fuel uh, the U.S. economy. And that has simply been exacerbated by the pandemic. So uh, every month we have about 4 million unfilled vacancies in the U.S. Uh, and about half of that is uh, people who would have been in the country through legal immigration who are not here. And to get back to uh, filling those types of slots, you're going to have to come up with some expansion of the number of legal uh, immigration outlets, uh, or else we're going to be beset with continuing supply-side shortages, the sort of supply chain problems that have been fueling inflation and uh, slowing economic growth in the U.S. Mm -hmm. If you just joined us, Peter Erasm, a, a, a labor economist at Iowa State University, talking about the connection between immigration policy in this country uh, and um, the, the jobs market. Um, doing some reading on this, Peter, um, uh, and I know how much you look to uh, our neighbor to the north, Canada, uh, facing their worker shortage in a very different way. Uh, the prime minister there, Justin Trudeau's ruling liberals and the opposition conservatives, both describe themselves as pro-immigration. Uh, back in November, Canada's government announcing a new goal to accept uh, nearly a million and a half immigrants by 2025, um, 60% trained in health care and other uh, urgently needed job skills. Um, <clears throat> as we, we just talked about here in our country, similar immigration legislation stalling. And we have to consider that the U.S. has almost... 10 times as many people as Canada, uh, and uh, the U.S. brought in the same number, about 275,000 of legal uh, employment-based immigrants in 2022. Now, Canada plans to bring each year over the next three years uh, that that number. So it, it goes back to your point here. This is a, uh, a political disagreement, right? Right. And, and if you look at Canada versus U.S. in terms of of competition for immigrants. Uh, the pace of entrepreneurial activity by immigrants in Canada, particularly in the STEM areas, has been accelerated in part by the limitations placed on the attraction of those same individuals in the United States. And so you do have uh, a net loss of uh, particularly entrepreneurial uh, mm -hmm. immigrants to Canada because of restrictions on those same individuals entering the U.S. How does Iowa compare to other states uh, when it comes to the need for immigrant workers? Well, we have uh, extremely slow uh, population growth in Iowa. Uh, we grow at about half the, the rate of the U.S., and if you look uh, since 2000, about 38 percent of that relatively slow population growth has been from foreign-born populations. So Iowa depends critically on immigration in order to fuel its, its uh, labor supply. 
And that's been exacerbated because Iowa atypically lost its labor supply during the pandemic as a relatively old state. Uh, we, we, and that's the group that atypically left the labor market. So um, if we did not have uh, immigration, we would have an even greater uh, lack of labor supply to meet these, these unfilled vacancies. The number of unfilled vacancies in Iowa is on par with the number of unfilled vacancies nationally. But it's critically important in some of the sectors that, you know, Iowa is atypically good at, like uh, manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And I want, so... Yeah, so, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, it, 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 it seems to me that, I mean, we've uh, had firms that have been complaining about the inability to attract people to Iowa, uh, in, you know, for all the time that I've been here, and I've been here for a long time. Uh, but it's it's become particularly acute in the last two years. Mm-hmm. What's your outlook on this front? Are, are you any reason for optimism, uh, given the current political climate um, over past years? Well, I I do think that if if Iowa wants to 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 increase its its population growth, we have not been particularly successful in attracting people from other states. Iowa is. Uh, relatively high in the in the fraction of of individuals uh, living in Iowa who are born in the state, and and uh, foreign born population is one of the sources of population growth where we've been relatively uh, successful. And I think we need to expand that. We need to be uh, much more friendly toward toward uh, immigration than we have been in the past. There is an interesting thing that may be happening, and that is that some of the, the large technology-related layoffs, STEM-related layoffs that are occurring on the coasts, mm-hmm. uh, if you're in the country under an H-1B visa, you're basically sponsored by your employer. And and it may be that if if uh, the state legislature wants to think about something, is, is there a way that we can tap in to some of the workers that may be needing to switch from one employer to another by making it a little bit easier for people to have their H-1B visa transferred if, in fact, they're going to be losing their jobs on, on the coast. And that Iowa has been relatively unsuccessful in attracting H-1B visas. Only yeah. about uh, half the, the uh, percent of H-1B visas issued nationally come to Iowa yeah. firms. Is that an idea that springs from your mind, or have you heard something afoot uh, from a legislator? I have not heard many policies related to attracting immigrants in Iowa in the last few years. So I, this is something that I think, uh, if we're thinking strategically as to how to fill some of these positions, I was H-1B visas, generally, if you're a small firm, it's extremely difficult to, to attract those things. But... Uh, uh, maybe Iowa as a state could do something to increase our share of H-1B visas. Peter, while well, I've got you and we have about five minutes uh, left, I'd like to get to your labor economist's view on uh, the coming changes uh, due to the 2021 Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. It goes by IRA. Now, this is uh, I guess it's it's hard to fathom the amount of money that is going in uh, to our infrastructure in through this act in the in the coming uh, years. One point two trillion, yes, trillion in direct government spending uh, for the act. These are uh, 
two subsequent initiatives, a $370 billion in incentives and grants for lower-emission energy products provided by the Inflation Reduction Act, $53 billion in subsidies for semiconductor manufacturing funded by the CHIPS Act. Um, So we have tens of billions uh, more in private capital as well. The primary purpose of these laws to stimu- not to stimulate the economy, according to what I've been reading, Peter, uh, mainly to uh, combat climate change, uh, to rebuild our, our uh, infrastructure, and, and to reduce our dependence on foreign semiconductors. So I wanted your view on this amount of investment uh, and how it will affect the, the, the labor market. I, I don't know, for instance, when this money uh, will actually hit us. Well, anytime you have a a massive shift in demand from one sector to another, and you can sort of view the government as picking winners and losers in this this, uh, uh, act, it's going to require a transfer of resources from one sector to another. And the resource that we think of first, because it's in such short supply, is labor. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have to be transferring labor from things that they're currently doing into things that uh, we basically have a government-generated uh, demand for. For example, some of the um, um, products that we're going to be attempting to, to build more are going to require the use of lithium batteries, and we're already seeing an increase in the price uh, of lithium in response to that. And so you're going to have some amount of cost related to shifting resources from one sector to another at the same time that the overall economy is beset by supply-side problems, supply chain problems that are in part due to insufficient labor supply. So you're going to be creating a source of inflation just because of that shift in, in demand from one sector to another at a time that we're having trouble shifting resources from one sector to another. And so I'm very skeptical that we're going to I, – I think that the Inflation Reduction Act, in fact, is going to go in the opposite direction. Hmm. Help us understand how transformational this may be, will be in some way um, when the money uh, starts to actually uh, produce products and, and services. I think 2024 may be a year that I've read that it may be hitting um, – the, the challenges you see, the specific challenges you see here in Iowa, how will we be changed by this, our job market and, and so forth? Well, in Iowa, we're probably not going to be uh, affected as directly since uh, we're not as involved in, in the production of things like uh, electric vehicles, uh, although we do produce parts for electric vehicles. Um, uh, my sense is that it's going to be much more on, on the cost of of things that we we purchase in Iowa. An electric vehicle with its current uh, capacity, you know, how long can you go without a charge in a relatively cold environment is somewhat limited. And so uh, if if we're going to be consuming electric vehicles uh, or shifting to that, at least with the current technology, they're not going to be as useful for us as as, uh, internal combustion engine. And so I suspect that those are the sorts of issues that we're going to have in Iowa. Um, how quickly we shift from uh, internal combustion engines to electric vehicles is another matter. And and 
there may be some technological issues that are going to to constrain the the rapid move from one type of transportation to another. Mm -hmm. In the final minute or so we have, Peter, let's zoom out and have your view on what else you've been watching in the in the big picture. Uh, for instance, well, we, we're coming up to three years, nearly three years after the start of this pandemic, major e- economic implications there. What do you have to say about the strength of the economy and jobs uh, three years after the start of the COVID pandemic? Well, we still have very strong demand for jobs. We just don't have people to fill them. Mm-hmm. And and at some point, uh, my own view is that that you can't continually have 4 million unfilled vacancies, which is a lot of production that's not occurring at the same time that you have very strong consumer demand without fueling inflation. And, and, and so I see continued upward pressure on prices. And at the same time, some of those, uh, unless we can come up with other sources of, of some of these supply side or supply chain problems, I think eventually that's going to create uh, a recessionary environment. We're going to have a strange recession that's driven by a lack of labor supply and not by a lack of labor demand. Mm-hmm. And we've never had one like that. So I can't say that <laughs> I have a lot of confidence in my sense that that's going to happen, but it seems like that's going to happen. How soon? Uh, I think we're going to see uh, a recession by uh, by June. Okay. We'll see, and we'll touch bases with you again. Always uh, love to have your insights. Peter Erasm, professor of economics at Iowa State University. Thank you for coming into our studio, Peter. Well, thanks for having me. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Tomorrow on the program, of course, it's a Politics Wednesday. Uh, We'll have analysis of the governor's condition of the state address, which will be broadcast live here on IPR this evening. My guests tomorrow for that analysis, Donna Hoffman of the University of Northern Iowa, Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University. Also, other politics in the news will touch uh, on uh, classified documents found at uh, President Biden's former office as vice president um, and the U.S. House and its uh, new rules tomorrow, Politics Day. Today's program produced by Danny Gear and Caitlin Troutman, our executive producer, Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Uh, Thanks for joining us.